Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're happy to welcome you to Mass. He's the managing partner at Superseed, a UK-based fund backing B2B software startups from seed to Series A. They have recently raised their second fund at £31 million in the beginning of 2022. Mass is an avid technologist, experienced SaaS entrepreneur, and skilled business operator with more than 20 years of track record in building and growing technology businesses. Before starting today's episode, we'd like to introduce you to Four Degrees. Four Degrees is the VC Relationship Intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, 4Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by automating the deal-making process. To learn more about how 4Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit 4Degrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Mas, welcome to the show. We're super excited to have you with us. How are you today? I'm great, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. It's really our pleasure. It's always interesting to hear the story of our guests. How did they get into venture in your case? What was the journey like to getting into venture, starting Superseed? And I also want to ask a silly side question because I'm curious. Your name is very Danish sounding, but your accent not at all. <laughs> so please explain. Yeah, so I've always been madly in love with technology and, and I was fortunate I got a computer at a young age. I was you know, six back in 1984, so I guess I'm showing my age. And at the time, you know, computers were all in English. I am born in Denmark, as you sort of pointed out, and I didn't know how to speak English. But my father got me a dictionary, English-Danish, and I sort of used that to learn the language and started picking it up. And I, I think I always had a sort of an Anglophile streak to me. I loved sort of English and Anglo-Saxon culture. And I thought, you know, there's just a lot of sort of dynamism and just you know, things happening in the US and then also in Europe and the UK. And as I grew older, I gravitated towards London and, and found myself here. So I've been here for 20 years. And I suppose over time, I've picked up what some people say is a bit of a mid-Atlantic accent. So sometimes I get <laughs> Irish, sometimes, I don't know, somewhere <laughs> in between the seas. But yeah, how did I get into venture? Back to the early days, I've always been madly in love with computers. And I've always been, I think, quite entrepreneurial. I came very close to starting a tech company back when I was in university in Copenhagen and actually had an offer for some seed financing from a, an incubator there for a, a software company in computer vision. Ended up feeling I wasn't quite ready to take investor money, feeling I wanted to learn a little bit more about how to be an operator. I went looking for the biggest tech company I could find, and that was IBM at the time. And so I joined IBM and stayed there for some years really learning the ropes of how the tech industry works and how you build and grow and run tech companies. And had a terrific ride at that. But, you know, after some years, sort of found myself thinking, look, I, I wanted to start a software business. And in 2009, had an opportunity to set up Superseed with a partner. Sorry, I said Superseed. It was, of course, Sapphira, the other S. So it was Sapphira I set up with a partner. And it was a SaaS company I built up over seven years. And we exited in 2016. 
following a sort of a really a traditional mad ride of, you know, starting out two guys and an idea, you know, building some software, selling, finding customers, raising venture capital, building up, building out until we had an opportunity to exit the company. That was a great ride. Lots of learnings. We're going to come back to some of those throughout the program, I'm sure. But after exiting Sapphira, I started doing initially angel investing and then really had an opportunity to start Supersede with Dan Bowyer, who is also sort of a lifelong tech operator and and entrepreneur. We came together and both felt that there was sort of a, perhaps an overweight of financial investors in the European and the London venture capital ecosystem. And we sort of felt, look, there is a need for more operators investing into these businesses at an early stage because building a company, getting it off the ground is so hard. And so what we felt when we built our own businesses was we would have liked to work with investors who had done it before. And so that was what we tried to create with Superseed. So really a super operator-focused, operator-driven fund backing predominantly technical founders and helping them in a very hands-on way, getting their businesses from C to Series A. I'm actually a bit curious to double click on your process, meaning meeting Dan and deciding to do Supersede together. Is there a good story there? Is How did you uh, vet him for being your partner? How did you come to the conclusion, yes, let's do this together? It's a many-year journey. It was a lot more organic than that, to be honest. We had been working on a number of startups. We, you know, Dan was working on some startups, you know, supporting a couple of companies supporting the teams there. I was doing work as an angel investor and had been supporting them. And we had been in the same circle and gotten to know each other. And I think sat down one day and and sort of started talking about this. And it happened quite organically. It wasn't sort of years and years. It was more of, of us coming together and both feeling that we agreed about a certain problem, which was this of how can you sort of combine venture capital with support for founders wanting to build that, agreeing about that as a vision and actually saying, let's let's give it a go. Let's see if we can make this work. We've just had our fourth birthday as a firm and it's a great journey. It's like, I think, you know, so many founders, when they set out, you create a team, you find people that you feel you have an affinity with, that you like, and where you feel you have a shared vision and sort of a shared idea of the kind of destination you go towards. But there's so many lessons you have to learn together. And for us, it's not our first rodeo. We've both been founders before. We've both been CEOs and companies. We've run them. And having to come together as founders and partners and agree about lots of stuff and agree about how we do things, lots of lessons, lots of discussions along the way, sometimes heated arguments, but we have a strong affinity for each other. We love working together. And I think we are very complementary in many ways. And we have such a strong shared belief and passion in helping founders do what we're trying to help them do, which is to build great companies. That always carried us forward and I think has helped us create the partnership we have today. So, Mass, now I want to jump a bit into the DNA of Superseed. It is clear that you focus on B2B software companies and you love software and machine learning that automate the way the world does business. But it could also sound a bit like you're smack in the middle of what everyone else in London is doing. (laughs) So I'm curious to hear how are you different? And I'm not asking so much about your value add because we're going to talk a lot about that. But in terms of what you actually focus on, what is it around your investment thesis and the way that you uh, look at founders that's different from other firms? We like to think of ourselves as sort of slightly contrarian, maybe not in the sense of, yep, software and AI is changing the world. And I think you know most smart investors have figured that out. <laughs> but we like to look at companies that maybe 
others have passed on. We like to look at things that maybe aren't the things that are mostly in fashion or in vogue. We're not afraid to roll up our sleeves and try and figure out, is there a gem in this business with the right circumstances, with capital, with some support, maybe helping building out a team, finding some key hires, you know, so you can turn something into, you know, the start platform of a really great company. Some investors like doing that work. Others, I think, are more momentum investors and sort of like to invest behind whatever is a trend or whatever is a hot topic right now. And we actually prefer to not sort of follow the trend or whatever is hot. We like to do the stuff that's a little bit off the beaten path and maybe a little bit difficult. That also means that you found your place, I imagine, in this bull market that we've been through and now seeing potentially coming to an end. But I'm curious to hear through this period of incredible growth in the VC sector, I'm curious to hear how have you positioned yourself and how have you seen the market heat up and now again kind of wane out a bit? <laughs> I'm curious to hear your perspectives. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably following on from what we just talked about, I think so because we tried to not necessarily jump on the latest fad, we probably didn't ride as much along on the wave up as I think some people did who sort of swing very heavily into whatever is the fad right now. That meant that we've been able to keep our valuations, our pricing, our enterprise under control. It also means that, you know, our companies sometimes maybe take, you know, we're comfortable with them taking longer from between rounds. So we don't need to invest and then see the next round within six months. We're comfortable spending 12 months, 18 months working with the team, getting them to reach some nice milestones. So I think to some extent that means, yeah, we may not be in on the latest fad at all times, but it also means we're a little bit insulated from some of the, some people might say silliness that's going on where, you know, it's sometimes, it feels sometimes a bit like when little kids, they play football, right? They all run to the same corner of the pitch. <laughs> we said we're quite comfortable. Well, there's a whole wide open swathe over here where we yeah. feel we can apply our trade. So I think that also insulates a little bit when things go the other way. So we haven't felt a massive swing yet. Will things change? Are things different in 2022 from 2021? Absolutely. But I think probably more for some people than for others. Have you started thinking about marketing more for the enterprises and so on and thinking about, okay, do we need to start thinking about filling up companies and so on? We've always discussed price. Yeah, it has to be a price that works for everybody. Some founders come with what we think are, you know, we just can't make sense of those prices. And, and sometimes we pass on those investments. And, and reversely, there are situations when, you know, a founding team, they have an idea of how they would like to price something. And we think maybe it's a bit above what we're comfortable, but we think, you know, it makes sense in the context of what we think this company can be. But we always look at price. We never just take whatever is in front of us. I think that's normal. You know, everything is a negotiation. And I want to tie this to something that you've said before, because you've said that, uh, you think of running a VC fund very much as running a firm that's based on sales and sales only really happens after the deal is made. I'd love to hear what sales means for you in the VC firm context. You know, we sell all the time. And for me, sales is people coming together and working out how to bring money and assets together to solve problems. So when we meet founders, you know, they are bringing themselves, the technology they're making, their market insights, their energy, their passion, their drive. Those are incredible assets. We're bringing capital, we're bringing expertise. The founders sometimes tell them that we're helping them see around corners, try and predict where the you know, pitfalls are, helping them accelerate, how to get to the next milestone. That's valuable for them. For me, the sales process in all of that is figuring out, is there a deal to be done here? Is there a way where we can get all the assets, the passion, the energy, the capital, our experience, bring all of that together to create an investment 
and subsequent support of that company, that makes sense and is a good deal for everybody. So the sales process is figuring that out. That is marketing, it's negotiation, it's workshops. You know, yesterday I had a great workshop with a founder who's building a really interesting business. And we spent, we haven't invested yet. We spent three hours just working through what he's going to do with this business over the next two years. And we started with kind of the 10-year vision of how the market is evolving and where he sees that going. And then we created that back into a sort of 18 to 24-month kind of here's the next major milestone. And then we broke that into kind of a roadmap to get there. That's great. We love that work. And we think the founders we meet often get something out of it, right? Working with other experienced founders, thinking through how can you go from where you are today to the next major meaningful milestone towards building, towards that massive vision you have, what the world is going to become. So for us, that's part of the sales process. You know, we learn about the founders. They learn what we can do. Together, we create value. I think that is sales in its purest form. That's then also what we encourage our, the founders we work with, what we encourage them to do with their customers is to go to their customers and solve problems with those customers. Whereas I think, you know, for many strong technical founders, there can be a tendency to think about problem solving as something that happens in front of the developer environment. You, know, you sit down with your code, you build more product, you solve problems by yourself. And that is important, right? We have to build software, we have to write code. That has to be done. But a lot of the real problem solving happens with customers, understanding their problems, understanding their needs, really, really working out how you can add value to what they do. And then the sales, they follow. You got to ask for the money, right? That's an important part. But it starts with that problem solving exercise. So get out of the room, get out of the building, get in front of customers, work with them, sell to them, not in terms of just sort of talk, 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 but in terms of working together to solve problems. I want to take this last bit of your reply to Andrea's question, and I think it's a perfect segue into your main value add, at SuperSheet, to founders. And I think it's been quite clear to our listeners already that it's very much focused on sales, but I'd love you to give a quick overview of, okay, as a founder, if I get an investment from SuperSeed, what should I expect to get aside from the capital from SuperSeed, actually? Yeah, so we have a structure and approach we try to apply, and no two companies are the same. So it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all. You're all going to go through these 10 steps and then out pop success at the bottom. But it's a framework we use to help founders you know, break down based on where they are today, based on who they are and what they are and what they're trying to become and how they're trying to change the world, helping them define and crystallize their identity as a founding team and as a business, their positioning in the world, their ideal customer profile. And then we go into kind of market segmentation. We help them figure out how to reach those ideal customers and be really, really specific about who they're trying to serve and what they're trying to do for them. And then from there, build the roadmap for the next 12, 18, 24 months. Of what is it that needs to happen? What are the big building blocks we need to get right to get this business from where it is today, which is typically seed stage, just entering the market, and until we have a proven revenue engine that's ready to raise a Series A. Once we build the roadmap together with the founders, we then help them put together the KPI and reporting framework, board structure, and then regular cadence, meeting every month, not as a tea and biscuits meeting of just founders educating us on their business and us taking notes, but as a workshop where we work through what are the biggest challenges the business is facing right now, given that roadmap we developed together. What are the things that have been ticked off? What are the things that are challenges? Where should we make changes to the roadmap? And how can we help that founding team think about 
how to, you know, all is about how can you accelerate your path and your journey towards the next major valuation milestone. Yeah. Just for some context, because I don't think we touched on this, when you get into the deal, so when you start working with the startups post-investment, what's the level of traction you're looking to when you get in, just so we have that perception as well? We like to see that founders have some validation from the market that there is a real need for their technology. It can be a little bit of revenue or some POCs, yeah. but some customers that have indicated that this technology really can change business enough for them to care. I mean, the biggest challenge, you know, most startups have is nobody cares. Yeah. Really, right? That's why they never get off the ground. Nobody cares. It's a solution looking for a problem. We always try and turn that around is what's the real problem that's yeah. worth solving? Do you have a solution that can solve that? Yeah. And so when you kind of deconstructed your approach to value add, you talked about positioning, you talked about market segmentation, you talked about roadmap building with the founders. I'm quite curious to hear, you know, across these different areas, have you seen trends in terms of where founders are struggling the most on the sales side of their business? Or is it, as you started off saying, is it really case by case? Or are there any type of inferences we can make out of that um, kind of experience you have? It's super case by case. Selling is a human skill and it's something that most of us, we have some experience of doing, you know, whether we think about it consciously or not. But like any skill, it's something that you can learn and improve. It's a little bit like, you know, if you're starting out with your business and, you know, you're the founding CTO and you've never developed any software before, it's going to be hard. And some people, they really, they learn, right? They learn how to program and they learn how to code and they learn how to make tech. And you can also do that with sales if you've never done it before. You can learn all the skills. Yep. You know, maybe that's not what you want to do. Maybe you don't want to become the best sales leader in the world. Maybe you want to become the best product visionary and product developer in the world. And in those situations, well, you're still going to have to sell because everybody has to sell. You still need to build a team. You still need to hire people. You still need to convince investors. You still have to solve problems in a commercial context. But you know, maybe you're better off finding a co-founder or finding kind of a commercial lead who can join your team and then be the person who has that experience, those skills build up to naturally enter into commercial conversations with customers. The problem-solving thing is something that most engineers, I think, do by nature. But there's sort of a commercial layer around it to make sure that you, you, know, you always have a commercial view, right? You can be in a big business. We all know big businesses, they can have lots of tea and biscuit meetings and they can sort of be a 12-month sales cycle and nothing really happens. Because if you don't have the skill on how to map out, finding the champion, and figuring out how to map to the buyer's procurement process and making sure you're talking to people who actually can make a purchase, you can waste a lot of time. Yeah. And that is a skill just like developing in Python is a skill. And if you've never done it, it could be hard to learn. Some people naturally have more of that skill, maybe because of their background. But, you know, I think sort of expecting that everybody is a master at it off the bat is just a bit silly, right? That's just not how the world is. Yeah. Mainly with technical founders, right? As you said. Yeah, absolutely. I spoke just last week to a founder that was uh, considering going into process with you guys, <laughs> which is a bit funny. And he was thinking, and we were talking about the fact that you have emphasis on sales. And he sees his business as built around marketing and product-like growth. And I said to him, you need to ask Dan and mess whether you're a fit then, because if that's how he views his business and views the future of his business, and you're a more sales-led or sales-focused investor, then the match isn't necessarily there. I'm sure that he did ask, so I'm sure that whether that's true or not, he found out. But I'd love to ask you the question here. Are you so sales-driven that there are businesses that's not a fit? 
because they use another growth model. I love product-led growth. I think it's amazing when you can do it. Truth is, a lot of things just don't lend themselves that well to product-led growth. And again, it's one of the pitfalls that some technical founders can fall into is, you know, you can have amazing technical expertise and capability. You can build a you know, great solution. You're trying to sell in a solution of a type that doesn't lend itself well to product-led growth just because the adoption, you don't have organic adoption, perhaps. you Maybe you're trying to sell to enterprise and the people you want to adopt the technology don't have the authority to do you know, user-by-user user adoption, yeah. right? So you, you run into a wall and then you have to deploy sales tactics. And then there are just models that lend themselves really well to product-led growth and it all comes together and the teams, they build the right product and it's beautiful when you can do it. And do we want to back that? Of course we do. You know, we love technology, right? There's so many things that lie around it where even if you have the best product in the world, there's still so many things that you can accelerate by thinking through all the other stuff, right? Maybe you can do great product-led growth, but then how do you do the roll-up inside the organization? How do you turn that into that big enterprise contract that means that now instead of relying on lots of little credit cards and lots of little teams, you get that enterprise deal with that you know, FTSE 100 customer? When you have this focus, we haven't at least spoken much about the technological development. Does that mean that you position yourself also typically in syndicates where you have other VCs or, or angels bringing in more of a focus on that? Or is it just that we haven't touched on that? Yeah, I mean, I think because we work with technical founders, the founders are often very competent technically. I don't think we've invested in a team where the founders didn't know how to build a product, right? Where they sort of came and said, we have an idea, we're not sure how to build it. Can you back us so we can hire a team to build a product? You know, then we're typically not a good fit. Then I would probably say that other investors would be a better fit. But because we work with technical founders who typically have figured out and are good at building product, Sometimes it's often great to co-invest with others. We like that. You know, often there isn't a specific need because the founders kind of, they've figured out how to build good stuff. When you co-invest, is it more of a need or is it a force on you or is it that you prefer to co-invest? Well, so historically we've invested out of a relatively small fund. Our first fund wasn't big and so we didn't have capital to lead all the rounds we wanted to lead. And so... In some situations, we put together syndicates. In some situations, we co-invested with others. And that was great. Now we have more capital, as we talked about earlier, so we can lead more rounds. And in some situations, we can do the whole round. And we are open to all those permutations. I think when you have co-investors, it's important that you share an ideology, philosophy, maybe is a better word, around you know how to build companies. If one group of investors, they are sort of go, 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 spend, 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 let's build and be aggressive. And another is, you know, let's be as lean as we can and try and go to cash you know, flow break even and stretch the money out. You're just going to have a lot of unproductive discussions. So we try and figure out before we invest whether we all have a shared vision about, you know, what the founders and companies should do. At the end of the day, the founders are in charge. They put together the budgets. You know, we get to nod and say if we agree or we can say if we disagree, but and we're not trying to drive the company or drive the car. Like the founders are doing that. So I think the best situations are those where you have a founding team with a really clear vision of what they're trying to do. And then a group of investors that are all aligned philosophically around, you know, how that founding team can best get to where they need to get to. And then we just come together and we solve problems pragmatically. Of course, there are conflicts sometimes, but I would say in the main, I can't think of many. It's very collaborative. Now, Mass, we need to go to the topic that has been on David's in my mind all day, because <laughs> we want to hear about your very recent listing of your fund, or at least part of your fund on the stock exchange. Tell us why did it come about? How have you done it? Let us know right from the get-go, what was your thinking and why have you done it? Venture capital is incredible because it's sort of a, a way to provide 
financing to some of the best and brightest and most energetic people in the world so they can go and build teams and pursue opportunities to change how business is done or how, at least in our world, or if you're in consumer technology, how consumers are treated and what products you give them. So, I mean, it's, it's such an incredible part of the world and we're so privileged to be here. There is a view, I think, that you know, venture capital has sometimes been a bit restrictive. It's not as accessible to people as maybe it should be. Strangely, you can very easily you know, log on to a platform and buy Bitcoin, it seems, without very many restrictions. But if you want to invest in venture capital, there are lots of hoops you have to jump through. It seems as apparently much more risky, which doesn't maybe make so much sense to us. We sort of think about what we do is, you know, we build well-diversified portfolios. You get access to lots of companies. Of course, there's risk, but I think on balance, probably some of the cryptocurrencies are more risky than what we do. And what we try to do in, in everything we do is to think about, you know, how can we provide access to more investors, to the great companies we invested in, the founders we back. And so when we put together our last fund, uh, latest fund here, Superseed 2, some investors we spoke with, they said, look, we'd like to participate, but you know, for whatever reason, either regulatory or other restrictions, we can't invest in a private market vehicle. But if we have a fund that's listed, then we can invest. Now, there are fund structures today in the UK, like what's the thing that's known as venture capital trusts that are listed and they come with certain tax benefits, but there are also a lot of restrictions around what you can and can't do. And so we wanted to put together a different structure that gave people a lot of flexibility. And so that's what we did with the listed funds. We have a fund that people can buy and invest in and they can hold the stock when they want. And if they don't want anymore, they can sell it. And it's sort of very flexible. And that means if you feel like having some venture capital in your portfolio, you can buy in. And if you don't feel like having it anymore, you can sell it. And we thought that was you know, an attractive offering. And so wanted to provide that to those of our investors who wanted that. So we went through what is a, it's a very traditional IPO process because it's a quite complicated <laughs> thing to go through and put a team together advisors. Fortunately, the advisors we work with were very excited about the project. And so we were able to work on very friendly, very attractive commercial terms because everybody was sort of quite excited to see this was a bit of a new model. And I think everybody we worked with felt, look, this is actually going to be fun to work on and we'll all learn something maybe we can use in other situations. So we went through that process and successfully listed last week. We learned a lot along the way about how these things work because public markets are very different from sort of private market investing. But yeah, I think it's a great additional to sort of the toolkit we have. How does it work from, uh, you know, you get the capital into that company and that then goes into fund two now. Does the returns of that then go into fund three, basically? That's exactly right. So normally when you invest in a private fund, you commit capital over a period of time, typically 10 years. The investment manager then draws on that capital as they invest. And then when they exit and sell companies, they send the capital back to investors. Mm -hmm. But in a listed fund, of course, that's different, right? It's like a listed company. So what happens is you put the capital up front and then that capital is invested in companies. And when there are exits, the capital then goes back to the listed company and the capital can then be invested in other companies. And so how do investors get their money back? Well, that's back to how does the stock exchange work? If you want your money, you, you, know, you sell the asset. So that's sort of how it, it works. And that's where the difference is between that and sort of the traditional venture capital model. We actually just interviewed Sebastian Malaby, who'd written the, the Power Law that just came out. And there, there was the story about the first funds in the U.S. actually having been listed. There was the problem that the value of the listed company was lower than the uh, aggregate value of the underlying portfolio companies. So they were trading at a discount. 
since you haven't done much yet, you're not in that situation. You can't know if you'll end up in that situation yet. But how have you thought through the liquidity? It, of course, won't impact you because you have the money up front. So it's secured. But if it starts trading at a lower valuation, because it's difficult to sell the stock at the stock exchange because there's not much happening on it, as an example. How have you thought through these scenarios? Yeah, I mean, those are always challenges you need to think about when you have something that's listed. The exchanges, they have something called market makers that set prices. So they'll do a bid and an ask and they'll make sure that all assets are priced and we have multiple market makers on our fund so that there's a price set every day. You know, is it trading to a premium or a discount? I mean, that's what you could sort of say, look, isn't it an issue? What if it's trading below the net asset value? Let's say, you know, the net asset value is 10, but it's trading at 9.9. Is that a problem at 95? To some extent, it might be, but it all depends on what you bought in at. If you bought in at 5 and now the net asset value is 10, but you can only sell at 9.5, you still have a very nice gain. So you're probably happy, right? Because you've almost doubled your investment. So I think, yes, as in everything in life, there's no perfect solution to everything. In a private fund, you have your capital locked up for 10 years. That's not ideal. Sometimes it's okay. <laughs> in a listed entity, sometimes things can trade below the net asset value. That's not ideal. But maybe you're happy to take a little bit of a discount to get the liquidity. Mm-hmm. What we try and do is to provide both options for our investors and let them choose. We think that's a better way to do it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I can't help but think, Mas, that it sounds like a big operational hassle <laughs> running these two different vehicles, one in the public markets and one in the private markets. How do you guys make it work? I'm really interested. What's the setup to make this work and you know, make sure that your time is focusing on doing effectively what's most important, which is finding the best deals, investing in them and helping them grow? I mean, it's amazing so much we can do with software. Uh, of course, we have, you know, we have fund administration support, right? So for all the sort of more basic back office things, we have people that help us take care of that and make sure it happens. But a lot today is relying on software and there's a lot of automation around fund accounting and drawdowns and distributions and a lot of the stuff that was kind of manual, manual emails and spreadsheets in the past is done really well on software platforms today. So I think the industry is just in the last three, four years taking a quantum leap in the right direction. It's lovely to see. I mean, a lot of stuff happens. There's sort of initially innovation around user interface and usability happens often in consumer markets. And so if you go back five years, I think most of the fund world still had software as sort of you'd look at it and you'd feel, gosh, this is straight out of the 90s. But now there's really, really good stuff. So that helps us a lot and really saves us a lot of time. Does that also apply? Because I'm asking because out of sheer ignorance, right? (laughs) Does that also apply to managing a publicly listed fund? Because there are significant differences, right? And so I know that in the traditional you know, private market setup of a fund, there's a lot of amazing software out there, but I have no idea. What about on the other side? Can you do that tech enabled or are you actually having to rely on financial advisors and people who are specialized in that? You must have a financial advisor if you're listed. That's that's by law. There's stuff from a regulatory angle that, you know, you need specialists to do. A little bit like, you know, there are regulations around who can be a lawyer and who can be an auditor. And it's the same thing if you have something in the the stock market, there are some regulations there. So, yeah, you use technology for what you can. And of course, when there are regulatory angles, you need to make sure they're covered in the right way. So to the listeners, so they don't feel that we're grilling mass here on all the (laughs) intricacies. But we're, of course, trying to shed as much light as possible on this because we know from what we're doing with building our kick-ass LP syndicates and democratizing access through them, 
that there is such a huge movement in VC around wanting to democratize access to VC. So that's why we're diving into this and trying to shed some light on for all listeners who might be thinking along the same lines. So Mas, my question is, what's the minimum viable fund size for something that needs to be on the public stock exchange? I think that depends a lot on the commercial arrangements you can have and that you can set up. I would say normally, probably in the five to 10 million pound range. I think we've been quite fortunate. We've been able to create a very cost-effective setup. I don't know if everybody would be able to do it as cost-effectively as we have been. But I think if you could do five to 10 million, I think you're fine and more than, yeah, you know, it's definitely a viable option. How about from a um, disclosure perspective? Because part of what's in, in a fund is a lot of secrets, right? <laughs> How does that work when part of the fund is uh, publicly listed? So things that are secret has to be kept secret, of course. That's obvious. So you kind of have a reporting structure that takes that into consideration. Just like, you know, many public companies have lots of secrets they don't disclose all the time. But there are things that you have to disclose. But those are things that typically would be disclosed in the public realm anyway. So things like, you know, what's the net asset value of your investments? Well, anybody can log into PitchBook and they can find that information. So it's sort of the things that you typically would be able to get access to anyway in private investing. What has been your biggest learning from uh, going on the stock exchange? It's been a lot around the mechanics. There's just so many things that I didn't even consider, you know, when we went through the process. I think there was almost 100 separate legal documents that had to be created and executed as part of the process. So it was just sort of, gosh, there is that as well, and there's that as well. And fortunately, we had great advisors that took care of all of this and guided us in the process. But there's just, there's a lot of work. So it was a lot of work to go through the process itself. And sort of towards the latter months of last year, there was some, you know, fairly long days and weekends just getting it all done. But kind of once it's done, it's done. So it's a process like everything else. The way you put it, my perception is that, you know, you had some appetite from LPs who couldn't do it otherwise and you really wanted to service them and, and you just found a way, basically. But now I'm curious, do you want to go ahead and beef this structure up and really start, you know, playing a bigger role on raising money from retail investors? Or is it not at all that that's your ambition, that's your vision? I'm curious to hear. We have a number of tactics that we are considering deploying in this area over the coming year. And watch the space is what I can say. I think some exciting things will be happening. Mas, uh, I think it's time that we go into the final section of our interview, which is what we call the quick fire round. The quick fire round is 30 to 60 seconds answer per question. And so first question is in uh, B2B and business automation, what excites you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? Oh, gosh, what do people not feel excited about? I mean, that's a very broad question. We're doing some stuff that is a little more difficult combining hardware and software. So we're very software focused, but we've got some investments that have hardware aspects to them, which is something that some investors shy away from. We think that a lot of times, you know, they're interesting, super exciting things you can do with AI and machine learning, but you need data and sensors can provide a lot of data. And especially within industrial automation, Industry 4.0, there is a need for more and better sensors to provide more and better data so we can unlock the power of what we can do with machine learning. That is a space we've done quite a lot of work in. We think it's super exciting and holds a lot of promise. But I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. Some people will look at it and sort of feel, oh gosh, that you know, that's 
maybe just too difficult. And just to add on that, and sorry for bombing the quickfire here, <laughs> but uh, you're actually doing so much in Industry 4.0 and robotics and so on that there are some people out there that think of you more as a robotics and automation investor than a B2B software investor. Am I not correct? Look, it's all business to us. You know, we're about making business smarter, you know, and I think whether business is business that happens in an office tower or a business that happens in a, on a manufacturing stock floor, you know, it's about how we make and produce the things that make the world go round. And we like to support all of those. And if we don't see the distinction maybe as clearly as some people do, we get equally excited about it. I think the main difference is probably, as we talked about before this, the complexity around then also having to incorporate sort of the hardware element which sometimes happens, but it's just another challenge to solve, right? Now it's my turn to bomb the uh, quick fire run. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the um, available financing out there, because many would argue that these CapEx intensive deals, you know, sometimes there feels like there's a lack of sources of financing that are better suited for that versus equity financing, right? Because we've had the guests talking about this, where you could, you know, part of the investment even at a seed stage could be more equity driven and the other one more kind of debt driven, for example, if if it's CapEx driven, right? What are your thoughts around that? And where do you see the gaps of needs for new players or new sources of financing? I think that's a terrific question. And I must say, as a preamble, we haven't done anything that's very CapEx heavy. We're just not set up to do right. that, right? I mean, if you're talking about very CapEx heavy, I'm sort of thinking tens of millions of dollars. You know, we were a seed fund. I mean, that's not the game yep. we're playing in. But I think you're absolutely right. If you're in that space, and I think there'll be a lot of opportunities in that space, you need different types of financing. Just relying on sort yeah. of traditional venture capital is probably not the best idea. And that may sometimes be why it's better and easier for people to try and split it up and say, look, is there a software opportunity there that's standalone that can be financed in one way? And is there a hardware opportunity that can be financed in another way? The challenge to then face is customers, they want solutions. They want integrated solutions, right? They don't want to buy it back bits and then figure out how to piece it all together themselves. And at the end of the day, if the specific problem that needs solving in industry requires, you know, some CapEx, some hardware, some software, you know, we need as an industry to come together to figure out how to give that to customers. And I don't think we've done that yet. So I think that's a very well-made point. Yeah, interesting. My second question of the quick fire round, our audience is mostly made up of emerging managers. So this is always a fun question to ask, which is what are your top tips to them, emerging VCs? Gosh, I don't know if I'm qualified to give that. I mean, I feel we're still learning so much every day. Look, you got to find great founders and back them and love them and just, you know, be there for them because that's what they need. We are here to help our founders shine. It's their companies. They have the dreams, the ambition, the energy the inside, you know, we're providing a service. It's our job to help them shine. That's how we try to go to work, if you can call it that. You know, it's kind of a privilege to do what we do, but that's the approach we tried and the mindset we try to take every day is how can we help these amazing people succeed just a little bit more? Maybe they would have succeeded without us, right? You can argue they probably would, many of them, but if we can help them get there faster, great. Maybe that means that instead of them building a good company, they can build a great company. They can build the world's leading company in the space. I mean, that's so everything we try and do is, is around trying to figure out how can we help the founders become more successful. So if there's any advice I could give to other managers, I think take that mindset and I think you'll be successful. I personally like the hidden comment in your sentence, which is go to work if you can even call it that. And I bring that up because many of the people we interview here and you know the people that I end up admiring quite a lot, this is made out of pure passion. 
right? It's not made out of wanting to become rich or whatever. Probably there's other industries much better for that. So I do think there's also a tip in there, which I'd like to echo a bit. Final question of the quick fire round, Mas, which is what can we expect in the future from you and from Superseed? We passionately believe that Europe has got some of the best technical talent in the world. And there are some amazing companies being built in Europe every day, but not enough of them become global champions. And we want many, many more amazing European founders in B2B to build companies that are global champions. And we want to help as many of those amazing B2B founders as we can achieve that dream. And so what you can expect from us in the future is you know, more, more capital to support more founders building more amazing companies. And then that's what we're trying to do. That's awesome, Mass. Thank you so much for joining us here at the European VC. We love you guys. It's super seed. It's been fun. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Four Degrees is the VC relationship intelligence CRM that helps you source and close deals in less time. Built by VCs who recognize the power of relationship networks, Four Degrees will transform your network into a living, breathing engine of opportunity by optimizing the deal-making process. To learn more about how Four Degrees can help you leverage your firm's relationships to move deals forward faster, visit fourdegrees.ai forward slash EUVC. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.